Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, today I'm honored to have a guest co-host to join me. Uh, debut author A.E. Schwartz writes stories with a deep emotional core and provides audiences with previously unexplored storylines and suspense. She has served as an editor for both the traditional publishing house and for two best-selling authors, and when she's not writing or editing, she's busy coaching other authors on the craft of fiction. So thanks for joining me, A.E. Absolutely. Good to be here. And we are in for a treat with our guest today. Karen Slaughter is one of the world's most popular and acclaimed storytellers. Published in 120 countries with more than 35 million copies sold across the globe, Pieces of Her is Karen's 18th novel. She's also the founder of the Save the Libraries Project, a nonprofit organization established to support libraries and library programming. A native of Georgia, Karen lives in Atlanta. Her standalone novels, The Good Daughter and the Edgar-nominated Cop Town, are in development for film and television. Karen, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Uh, congrats on your latest release. I was really pleased to meet you recently when you were signing books in New York, and uh, I'm glad you could, uh, could be on the show. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with just kind of a basic question about story. I'm just curious, for someone as prolific as you are, what draws you the most to a story, either one that you're writing or one you're reading or watching? I think for me, the you know everybody always says you, you've got to like focus on character, and and I think that's very important. But I think you have to be equally as focused on plot. Um, and you know, we've all read books where there's a great opening and then it sort of falls apart on the back end, or you get toward the end and you're like, oh, this is the page where the editor said the author needs to really figure out and explain who the bad guy is, right? Yeah. And the author kind of doesn't have an idea up until that point how to end the story. Um, and, the, you know, the exciting part when, you, when you're working is all the ideas you get, you know, at the beginning of a story about what it's going to be, how the book is going to be structured. But to me, I think it's just as important to think about the end because if you don't put as much work into that back end as you do the front, you'll really piss people off because that's <laughs> the promise of a great story. You know, I, it's a bigger betrayal if it starts out great and then kind of craps out than if it's okay in the beginning and then craps out. So for me, you know, I'm thinking about all those things that I feel as a reader when I start writing a story. Um, but my book, Pieces of Her, which is out uh, August 21st, that for, for me that's, that was the kind of story that I've been thinking about for a while. And most of my stories, and just when they're that little kernel in my head, start with a line. And the line that started this book was something between this mother and daughter in the first chapter. They're having a brunch together for the daughter's birthday. And the daughter thinks uh, there's a truth universally understood that your mother can say to you, your hair looks good, and what you hear is your hair has looked awful every day of your life until right <laughs> now. And I think that that really keyed me into not just the characters, but who they are and where they fit in the story. So for me, that's all of those combination of things 
to borrow the phrase, blended together, uh, that's what makes the, the book come alive for me. That's excellent. So when you start your story, you mentioned structure. Do you tend to have um, an outline, or do you tend to write more organically as the story unfolds? I think it's a little bit of both, and every writer is different. You know, I mean, Jeff Deaver is very, very driven to outline, and you know, I know a couple other authors who who kind of do it. But it's really popular to say pantsers. You know, they do it by the seat of their pants. For me, I do a lot of thinking about the story before I sit down to write it. So my writing isn't done on the page; it's done in my head. And I think of it in sections. So as I'm thinking about those sections, I guess I'm doing an outline, like a general outline about where the beats of the story will go. Um, Because, you know, there has to be a rhythm to every book. And in Pieces of Her, for instance, it's a really quick rhythm. In my last standalone, The Good Daughter, it was sort of methodical. Um, So I guess the difference between the blues and jazz, maybe would be a good way to put it. So that's what I'm thinking about is where are the emotional points, where are the the points of action, you know, how are they all going to fit together. So a lot of that is very deliberative on my part. Um, sometimes I'll write myself little notes about, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens, but I'm not one who just structures the whole book from beginning to end because I'm, I'm kind of – um, anti-authoritarian, so even if I'm telling myself what to do, I won't end up doing it, um, <laughs> which I, I've realized, you know, if I, if I just sat down and did an outline for a book, it would never be that, that, that book in the outline. I hear that. That's the same same with me. Now, I know that, A.E., you had a couple of questions that you wanted to bring up. Why don't you... I do. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to... Uh, ask Karen about um, her protagonist. So um, I'm interested because you have a lot of female leads in your stories. Um, I've I'm actually have read The Good Daughter and I really have enjoyed it. Um, and I've heard that there's a delicate balance when it comes to writing your female leads, like as far as in general. Like you want your character to be strong but still emotional, intelligent but not obnoxious. So how do you master creating these compelling female protagonists that readers like me are just so drawn to well i think you know the fact that you're you say intelligent but not obnoxious is a really difficult thing for women you know male characters Mm -hmm. can be extremely intelligent like sherlock holmes and they're considered quirky or you know there's a sexy kind of vibe to them and but if women are too smart then you're screwed because women you know women are the predominant purchasers of fiction they buy anywhere from 80 to 85% of all fiction. Women are also human beings who can look at a photograph of another woman and just hate her, right, for no mm-hmm. reason. Uh, and so <laughs> I, and this is something I learned with my character Sarah very early on. You know, Sarah Linton is a doctor. When we first meet her in Grant County, she owns her own business. She's a pediatrician. She's got a great family. You know, she has some problems, but... You can't make women too accomplished or too smart or too anything. Otherwise, other women will hate them. You know, but you can have Jack Reacher go to a town and kick butt, and it's fine, and that's totally believable. And, you know, he never he never is in pain, and he's this super guy. 
But if you had a woman do all that stuff, you'd have to have a moment where she just sat and cried. Otherwise, people would say, I don't find that believable. Even though anyone who's seen a woman give birth to a child knows Jack Reacher would True. die if he did that. <laughs> True. Um, but so, uh, you know, it is a delicate balance. And one thing I think I learned very early on is it's okay to write an unlikable female character. Uh, I, I heard an interview a long time ago with Carol Shields where she said the problem is when women deliberately deliberately write an unlikable woman, they think, people think it's a mistake. And it's really something you have to push <laughs> past, right, because – Right. The fact is, the, the things that make them unlikable sometimes make them interesting, you know. That's true. And so that's what I want to do. I, I, I think that, you know, in The Good Daughter, that's a good example. You know, Charlie is just that kind of woman that people just like because she's kind of that girl next door and she's she funny is. and she's, she doesn't feel sorry for herself. She, she just kind of takes the knocks and gets back up. And Sam is kind of cold, uh, her mm-hmm. sister, and she reads cold, and that's very deliberate, uh, and she's very intelligent, and and so I use them to balance each other. But it is a real tightrope you have to walk, and you have to kind of say to the reader, "Hey, look, it's okay if you don't like this character. I'm going to make her interesting enough so that you want to at least find out what's going to happen to her." That's true, and I think that's a good point because it was interesting with uh, the good daughter you. You know, you'd really, you did show Charlie's story first, and, and that's a good point that you mentioned. She is probably more right off the bat the likable character. So you you introduce readers to this style that we're instantly drawn to. So by the time we meet Sam in the middle, like we're hooked because we know her background so that we we accept that coldness that she has. And I think that's so good. I, I'm seeing it now, you know, more clearly just talking to you through that. So. Uh, I think that's that's interesting writing, um, and I'm I definitely think that's a great way to handle female protagonists. Well, I'm glad to hear it because in my <laughs> my next book, the uh, the pieces of her, I totally switched it around because I started off with a young woman who's sort of spinning her wheels, and she's not uh-huh. very very um, she's 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 a typical uh, older millennial, you know. She's she's at this point in her life where she's 31 years old and she thinks, uh, you know, why am I not a doctor now? Why am I not, you know, like Olivia Pope? Why why am I working a crap job covered up in student loans still living with my mother? Uh, and, you know, I was really conscious when I was writing this character that I had to make the thing she was finding out. Of course, you know, this is a, a mystery about her mother. The whole book is uh-huh. predicated on the fact that, you really don't know your parents. Um, and, of course, this being a thriller, her mother got into some awful crap. But so, you know, this this young woman, she's she's really, she's not very strong when we meet her, which is mm-hmm. sort of anathema to what you're reading right now, right? Right. And all these books, thanks to Gillian Flynn, you know, suddenly it's okay to write strong women. It's so great even right. <laughs> pretending like they're women. Uh, and so writing a character like this, I just thought, you know, I want to explore, okay, we understand that women can be strong, but what makes them strong? And so I wanted to test her out and have her evolve throughout the book. I love like that. that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I was just going to say I like how you mentioned earlier, Karen, that really 
you're walking this fine line between believability and also meeting the expectations of your readers and also trying to create, you know, almost reshape those in, in a certain way while respecting them. That's a difficult dance to dance to accomplish. Well, I think part of it is, you know, I'm just, I love reading crime fiction. And I think some of my favorite authors, like Megan Abbott or Peter Robinson or Mark Billingham, you know, and I love Lee Child. I, don't, I didn't mean to pick on Jack Reacher because I love the concept. I love every book. It's the same kind of story, but Lee manages to do something completely different each time, and I think that's fantastic. But, you know, I think you have to decide what kind of writer you want to be. And if you're in the thriller genre, you know, you're going to make things loud, right? You're going to have really crazy things happen, like my detective, Will Trent. I mean, no cop would have all of these horrible cases. He would paint himself <laughs> by now, right? Or they would be looking at him saying, what's wrong with you? Why do you, Why does all this murder happen around you? Um, but you, for me, I wanted it to base it in as much reality as I could because I'm very conscious, especially when I'm writing about violence against women, these are crimes that happen every single day and every single second in the world, right? A woman is being abused or murdered or something awful is happening, molestation or rape or whatever. And it was really important to me to honor the fact that these are real crimes by being as truthful about them as I could be, because I think it's very dangerous if you soften the language around these horrible crimes, because it kind of gives a silence to the predator that protects them. And so one of the things I wanted to do when I first started out was, you know, call rape, rape. You know, I'm not going to say... Uh, sexual assault when there's a better way to explain what happened. Now, um, you, you're kind of known for exploring some of these darker issues and having some violence and so on. And uh, I know some people have asked me over the years, do you think that writing uh, violent scenes desensitizes people to violence? And I personally don't as long as you're being honest and respecting human life but what's your take on that do you ever hear people come to you with that or feedback in that respect i don't hear it as much as i did when i first started you know yeah. it was me and patsy cornwell and patricia reichs who were writing these what they were calling masculine thrillers right and and masculine was the only way they to describe it that would make sense to them because it didn't seem right that women were writing about the sort of violence that happens to women since the beginning of time, right? And so it was a really, it, it, honestly, every question in an interview started out with, why are you writing about this, right? Uh, Which yeah. no one ever asked men, why are you writing about violence against women, right? And so one of the things that I grew up with was my grandmother was being abused by my grandfather. And we would see a black eye at the dinner table or a broken bone, or we would hear, you know, the arguments, and we never talked about it. Hmm. And not talking about it did not protect my grandmother in any way. You yeah. Know, being, being honest, it probably made things worse because it normalized it. And the fact is that in the United States, if you're pregnant, the number one reason for mortality for pregnant women is homicide. Not any complications from childbirth, homicide. 
from the age of 0 to 45, if you look at the top five reasons for mortality for women, you will find homicide in the top five. I mean, that's pretty frightening, right? Yeah. And that we is. don't talk about these things. We don't talk about how dangerous the world is for women. And, you know, part of me thinks that's why women are drawn to reading crime thrillers, because it taps into that anger. You know, why do we have to deal with this? And it also gives the sense of justice that you don't often find in the real world. And one of the things I did recently, I was in Germany touring Berlin, and the the guide who was showing me the parts of the city said, you know, in the 1980s, there was a very concerted effort in Germany to use the word murder. So we don't say Anne Frank died of typhus at Bergen-Belsen. We say she was murdered at Bergen-Belsen because she was a young girl. She should not have been there. She should not have been in the concentration camp. She should not have been exposed to typhus. This was a deliberate act. This was murder. And if you think about that in the context of sexual assault or violence, I mean, it's part of the reason why we have no words to differentiate this stupid, misogynist, sexist stuff that um, Al Franken did and the disgusting stuff that Roy Moore did, you know, because we don't, we kind of gloss over these details. And I, I always think about Roman Polanski when this conversation comes up, because a lot of people know, okay, well, you know, he did something gross with a young girl. She was 13. He lured her to his house. He drugged her. She threw up on herself. He still had sex with her. She had vomit all over her. He sodomized her. And then he sent her home. And he pled. As part of his plea agreement, he had said that he did all these things, Right. And there are still people who celebrate this guy. And I think part of the reason that they can do that is they ignore the details. So when I'm writing the details, I want you to have a real understanding of what's happened. Rape is not sexy. There's nothing titillating about it. There's nothing that a a normal woman would want that is happening, you know. I mean, it's just not saying what it is kind of gives you the ability to excuse it or to say, oh, well, you know, she really wanted it or she changed her mind or she's trying to make her boyfriend jealous. or, And then if you look at the details, no, no one would want this to happen to them. It's not right. And so in my novels, I try to show that. That being said, I would never say to another writer, you've got to show this. I think it's yeah. a very personal choice. Mm-hmm. I would never say to a reader, you've got to read this. I mean, if people say, hey, your books are too tough for me, I say, you know, I totally understand. I love Mary Higgins Clark. I love Ella Fairburke. I love Laura Lippman. There's so many writers to please every reader. But if you want mm-hmm. the truth about something, then that's what I'm going to give you in my books. So that's interesting. That sort of leads me into another question I wanted to ask you, and I thought that maybe we'd already covered it with our first question. Um, I wanted to ask what typically comes first for you, the idea for a storyline or the type of character you'll be portraying. But in talking to you now about how passionate you are about letting these uh, stories of violence and especially things that happen against women, I'm inclined to think that I'm, I'm wondering if you're uh, sort of motivated to tell stories that maybe have, you know, affected 
um, you in some way, like just by hearing them, like these stories of, of rape. So is it this, this graphic storyline that sort of is birthed first and you're like, I have to get this story out. There's women who deal with this. And is that what starts for you or is it um, a storyline that you sort of make up in your head or? Well, I think in the beginning, you know, my first book, Blindsided, was based on um, a serial rapist in Atlanta, very loosely mm-hmm. based on uh, he was a gentleman who was a janitor at a large office building and mm-hmm. he would um, hide in the men's restroom and wait for a woman to go into the women's restroom, and he would go over through the drop ceiling and drop oh. down into the stall and rape them. Oh, wow. And this went on for months, and women were, you know, having to go to the bathroom in pairs, which you know is very difficult, especially if you're working, and they right. put a lock on the doors. And it, it, it took months to finally find this guy, but I would have to go there. And I, I was in sales, and I would go to this building, and it was terrifying. And mm-hmm. I wanted to write about that, and that, that was the, really the genesis of my first novel, the, the plot of my first novel. But I just think over the years, I write the story I want to write. You know, I look around. Mm-hmm. I don't always write about violence against women. Um, it's the stuff I get attention for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I made a concerted effort from the very beginning. If I've got women who are killed in one book, I'll kill men in the next one. Right. <laughs> you know, no one ever <laughs> talks about how Cop Town doesn't have any female victims. <laughs> Uh, and, and in fact, you know, most of the jackets around the world would have a woman looking very terrified on the front, even though, you know, it's mm-hmm. only men who should be terrified in that book. <laughs> um, but I think that just being a woman in the world and looking around and seeing what's going on, I, it's something I want to write about. You know, a long time ago, I remember having this one of these big marketing meetings. I'm sure you're both familiar with these marketing meetings and, you know, everybody from the publishing house is there and... It's lovely, and, you know, they they have cupcakes for you and stuff like that. Um, And they talk about what they're going to do about the book. And they were talking about, you know, how we're going to market this. And I said something about, well, have you considered – you know, men's magazines, or you have you considered to reach out to men? And they, they, the, my editor looked at me and he said, "Fifteen percent of your readers are men, and I don't think we, that we should cater to them, <laughs> to and and ignore the women who are, are are going to buy your book, right? Yeah, which mm-hmm. makes sense. I mean, not that I'm not grateful for the fifteen percent of men. But, but it, I mean, let's face it, and I'm sure you've, in publishing, you've run up against this, where, you know, a lot of men just will not read books written by women. They're just not interested. Right. And so once I kind of let go of that, I thought, this is an opportunity to show some anger, because we don't normally see women angry. It makes mm-hmm. us very uncomfortable. I think that's one of the reasons why the Hannah Gadsby um, special on Netflix, the comedian is so powerful. It's because she's really angry, and she has such a right to be angry. But it's very uncomfortable to watch because we just don't see that. You know, we see right. stereotypes of angry women, like on the Housewives of New York or whatever. And you know, invariably you hear in the back of your head, so like a cat screeching, because it's always framed as a cat fight. But women who mm-hmm. are really pissed off, that is not something that we see, <laughs> right? I mean, even like Carmela in The Sopranos, people hated her 
for nagging on Tony all the time, and you're thinking he's he's having sex with hookers and he's killing people and he's doing drugs and he's lying to her all the time. Why wouldn't she be angry? <laughs> but right. you know, just as a society, we're so unused to seeing that. People, and same thing with Skyler and Breaking Bad. People, not just the character. People hated that actress, right? I remember and that. Yeah. Right. I mean, she's getting the actress is getting death threats, and she's mad at her husband in the show because he's selling meth. I mean, what world are we living in? Right. So that was one of the things I thought is I'm just going to give space to write about this anger in a safe place and not worry about my reader so much as being able to be the voice of that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, when you mention voice, it makes me think of this whole idea of uh, voice within writing. And uh, you're known for really having a strong voice with your stories and with your characters. Now, I mean, this is different than giving a voice to, you know, certain issues, but how would you define what voice is regarding um, a story, and, and how, do, how does it affect the stories that you tell? Well, I think every writer has their own voice, right? I mean, yeah. if you don't, you kind of shouldn't be doing it. Um, well, I mean, that's not entirely fair, because some writers are very good mimics, um, you know, like if they're ghost writers or they're doing stories with another writer, they're good at mimicking that. But I always, when I think about voice, I think about Lee Child because no one else can write Jack Reacher. I mean, God knows people have tried and tried to yeah. rip him off, but he's just so sure about the character and how that character would behave and what his moral code is and where his lack of morality is. I mean, people love Jack Reacher, but he's a really bad guy, right? <laughs> I mean, he's not. He's breaking the law. He smells. He seldom bathes. He he like has a toothbrush, and I mean, if you and he's huge, right? All these women who think he's sexy, no. If you saw him in the street, you'd go the other way, right? It's, but Lee is so certain about who this guy is that he doesn't let that interfere, right? I mean, after all this time, he could have, like, written him to the audience and made Reacher sexier, maybe given him a girlfriend or something like that, and he doesn't. And I think that is a a typical example of voice. It's just a, an author who really knows the character and what they want to say in that novel. Mm, I like that. I mean, usually we think of it as a distinctive style, but I like how you tie it in with being, you know, certain of this character and how they would respond genuinely in these situations. I like that. Yeah, and going off of uh, voice, I was going to ask you about uh, the way that you write dialogue in your stories. And, again, I'm just going to reference, I know it's one of, it's not your newest book, The Good Daughter, but I loved just the conversations that the two sisters could have and even the conversations they had with the dad, um, it struck me as just so realistic, so much so I thought, I've never seen anything like this where an author can venture off the path of the plot at hand and just, just have them talk like actual human beings, but not in a way that, um, you know, is going off on a wild goose chase or it just it felt so cohesive that I was just amazed if um, that dialogue, is that something that comes natural to you or is that something you really have to work at? 
It's very natural for me, and I think part of it is I really see my characters very distinctively. You know, I hate in books, like, I I mean, I'm not going to rag on Aaron Sorkin because, I mean, he's a god, right? But every character in an Aaron Sorkin movie or TV show is going to talk exactly alike, right? Right. They're all going to be smart. They're all going to be quick. They're all going to be walking and talking and chewing gum and doing all the things that normal people can't do, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm really mindful that not everybody operates at those levels, right? And that not everyone has skills, like a skill set to have a conversation. And in The Good Daughters specifically, you know, Sam and Charlie are very different. But when they're together, they are more alike than not. And that was something I worked on in the book. You know, when you meet Sam in New York, she's very... I won't I won't say almost robotic, but she has the way she does things, right? And even right. her language is, is is so precise. And then after a chapter with Charlie, she you know, she's splitting splitting her infinitives and she's you know, making right. mistakes and she's breaking down her language and, and that's that sorta of happens to me, you know, when I'm with my sister because we kind of revert back to who we were when we were kids. And I'm the youngest of three girls, and, and she's my middle sister. We're, we're close, very close. And when she comes to my house, she'll get, uh, you know, some water for me, and she'll make a sandwich for me, and she'll do all the things that she was supposed to do for me when I was a little girl and she was my <laughs> sister. And, you know, when we get in the car, she drives, and it's because she's the big sister. And so, you know, all these rules that we don't really talk about come back into play. And when I was writing about Charlie and Sam, you know, they even the language they have with their father, Rusty, is very different from the language they have with each other, and that's very different from the language they use with strangers, right? Right. And so that's how people are. You know, we have different types of with different ways of speaking to different people. And I try to think about that when I'm in that character and I'm writing that character's dialogue and that I don't want them to sound alike. You know, I don't want them to even, you know, one thing people do when they spend a lot of time together is they tend to repeat the same words. And so Mm -hmm. Sam has her own words in that first chapter. Charlie has her own words. And once they're together, they're picking up on each other's language. And and that's just like a kind of, it's a, like a, a really nuts and bolts thing. Um, but that that's what I try to pay attention to when I'm writing dialogue. And one thing I never realized I do is I actually sometimes will speak it when I'm writing it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the way I figured this out is my cat would come in and just kind of look at me like, do you want <laughs> something? Like, oh, I he's just shocked because I was saying something and I've been quiet for so long. He thought I was going to feed him. (laughs) (laughs) That's, um, you know, that's a great point. I, um, I've talked to a lot of different, um, writers over the years and I feel like the ones who have the best grasp of dialogue often will do the same thing. They will either consciously or subconsciously mouth or read the, the words aloud. And I feel like, when you write dialogue, very often you're writing more for the ear than the eye. I mean, in a sense, both. But but um, if you've heard it, usually it does ring more authentic. Mm-hmm. Well, 
let's um, let's talk a little bit, Karen, about your newest book, Pieces of Her. It's getting great reviews already, and it hasn't even hit the bookshelves yet. When you were writing this book, what um, what drew you the most to telling sort of a unique story, different from different from some of the other novels that you've tackled over the years? Well, that's you know that's an important distinction. There is to make it different, and that's. My goal with each book is to do something different. I don't want to write the same book over and over again. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, like, Janet Ivanovich is really great at that, and it's a few hours of my time, and I really enjoy it, but I have no idea when I finish it what it was about, or, you know, I have no memory of the details, and that's great. I mean, I think that's a wonderful skill. For me, I want to write a different book each time. I want to say something different about character. I want to feel like I'm growing and doing new things as a writer. Um, and I wanted, in, in pieces of her, of her specifically, to deal with geography. You know, I talked a little bit about Andy and how she's stunted a bit in her growth into adulthood. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book was have her go on a road trip. And she goes uh, to different states. You know, she ends up going, you know, halfway across the country. And it's, the, the interesting thing for me was thinking about the geography. The, the further away she gets from her parents, the more independent she becomes. Hmm. And so I was very deliberate in that um, as far as how her evolution would, would come about. And part of that was using geography and using just sort of a map as a way to take her quickly through the years of adulthood that she had sort of coasted through. Now, you mentioned earlier that kind of plot and character, uh, very often people separate, and you really like to focus on plot. At what point in the writing of this book did the end become clear to you? Oh, from the very beginning. Oh, interesting. So Pieces of Her, part of the book takes place in the 1980s. And I've learned the hard way that you have to be very careful when you're doing a book in present day and past to make sure that by the time it ends, they all come together. Otherwise, right. you know, the 1980s part could end four chapters before the end of the book, and you've got no reason to be writing a book at that point. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we talked about outlining. I'm a little more careful when I'm doing a past-present book because I want to make sure that that all lines up because that's the payoff, right? Uh, especially with pieces of her, you know, you the, the first chapter in the past is in a completely foreign setting, and you're kind of as a reader saying, what are we doing here? What does this have to do with Andy? Uh, in South Georgia, you know, living in a coastal town, and this horrible thing happens, and suddenly she realizes her mother's been lying to her all her life. Who, who am I supposed to follow? And then suddenly at the end, you know exactly what's going on. And, and I love that kind of thing, but you have to really understand where you're going uh, to the end of the book. Well, for me, where yeah. you're going before you can get to those surprising moments. Um, and I feel like if you don't, if if it's all just those surprising moments, you know, it could just be too much, right? Too, the reader gets overstimulated. They can't quite follow what's happening. 
But conversely, if it's too slow, then they kind of the reader will lose their ability to pay attention. So I try to make sure when I'm going back and forth that there's a cliffhanger at every chapter, right? And and so you know you get to the end of chapter twelve and it's chapter thirteen and you're back in the 1980s and you're like, oh, I, I want to know what happens to Andy next. But then within hopefully a paragraph, you're saying, oh, I want to know what happens in the 1980s. <laughs> I feel like. A lot of that, especially the disorienting feeling early, requires a lot of trust on the behalf of readers. Like, you know, you're sort of setting up this contract with them saying, look, give me your time and it will pay off in the end. You might not quite, you know, grasp exactly what's happening at this moment, but trust me. And the key is keeping those promises. Absolutely. It's what I said uh, right off the bat. If you don't deliver at the end and give them, number one, something that makes sense, because a lot of times lately I've gotten to the end of the book and the person, the writer just hasn't bothered to figure out the nuts and bolts of it, right? And you're like, yeah. well, how did this happen? You know, what, well, what about <laughs> the, where did the rabbit go? You know, or <laughs> there, there, there's all these missing pieces. And I'm not an, an author who feels like you have to tie everything into a bow. Uh, I like leaving some details unexplained, right? But you've got to explain the big pieces. And, and I think that part of the reason I was able to write a book like this is just because I've written a lot of books. You know, unfortunately, you've got to get a little older um, and a lot of, of pages under your belt before you're in a position to say, I'm, I'm going on this journey and I'm trusting that the reader will be able to follow me. And also, you know, I banked enough goodwill uh, with my previous book so that the, the reader just sits down and knows I'm going to be entertained. I mean, that's how I feel when I read, like, an Alifair Burke book, you know. I just, on the first page, it's like, I trust you to lead me through this story yeah. and to have done the behind-the-scenes work so that I'm not going to be pissed off at you at the end because it doesn't make sense. So what is your writing style like? I think that's really interesting, just knowing how uh, layered, that just seems like the right word, with your books. There's just so much information that's tied together nicely, and I'm, I'm curious what your style is like when you go to write. Do you find that you just get the rough draft out there and you go back and you you really bulk things out or do you you know are you a perfectionist and you edit a lot as you go I'm really a perfectionist but I'm I'm going to be honest I don't edit a lot as I go because I don't okay. write until I'm ready to write and then okay. I'm really clear about what I want to write you know I I've, I've I've done all that editing and drafting in my head so that when I get into the book, it, I just know exactly what's going to happen. And, you know, I felt that way with my, my earlier books, and I think part of that was just blind arrogance because <laughs> a lot of times I didn't. <laughs> it wasn't justified. Uh, I feel a little more justified now. Um, and I, I when I was writing Pieces of Her, for instance, this was a story I had thought about two or three years ago. Um, my next book, which is a Will Trent book um, that will be out next year, that idea came to me about five years ago. Mm. And so it takes me a little while until the story is at a point where I'm ready to write it. But, you know, when I'm in an airport or on an airplane or on the treadmill or at the grocery store, I'm thinking about 
all of the pieces of the story, who the characters are and how they fit together. And that's really kind of my glory time for me. That's the best time of my life is when I'm able to do that. I remember hearing about one author who was out to dinner with his wife. I was trying to recall when you were telling that just a moment ago who it was, but um, he was staring at the couple next to them uh, who were having some sort of conversation, and his wife turned to him and said, Stop writing, James. (laughs) Like She knew that just sitting in the restaurant watching this couple, he was writing his book, and he wasn't present there in the moment with her. Yeah, I'm a big daydreamer, and I, you know, my dad thinks it's hilarious because that's the number one thing that my teachers would say is that I wasn't paying attention in class. And he said, basically, now I've made made a living out of not paying attention to things and just being in my own head. But, you know, there are worse things I could have gotten into. Well, A.E., do you have any other questions that you wanted to shoot at Karen here? I don't think any other questions other than I'm just amazed that she was blessed with such a last name like Slaughter and wrote thrillers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was relentlessly teased as a child. No little girl wants a last name like Slaughter, so I think I, I've got the scars to show that I've earned it. I did have to wonder if that was a pen name, so I was reading an interview that you had done one time, and, and I saw where you had commented that that was your actual last name, so I thought, wow, that's, that's something. So. Yeah. You know, a lot of people still don't believe me. They think I, I had it legally changed or something. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, honestly, but I grew up with it. My dad is pretty well known in the town we grew up with, so there are plenty of people who can testify. <laughs> Well, I'm really intrigued um, about Pieces of Her, your newest novel. And, of course, we want people to check out any of your novels. Would you say the best place to start is here with the newest one, or would you redirect people to maybe one of your earlier books if they're not familiar with your writing? Well, you know, I think always um, it's good to read all of an author's books if you like them but you've got to start with something and I would say this is a good one pieces of her are the good daughter you know get a taste of the standalones and then with the series I've been writing Will Trent for quite a while now um, so if you like the standalones I'm pretty sure you'll like the series excellent well Karen, thanks so much for being on today. Um, I've enjoyed the conversation, and I love how you really try to write what's genuine and authentic about life without, oh, I don't know, muting violence, but just portraying our world as it is. And I feel like that sense of honesty really resonates with your readers. Thank you very much. Yeah. And um, A.E., thanks for being on as well. I want to allow people to connect with both of you. So let's start with A.E. What's the best place online to find out about your writing projects or your editing services? Sure. That would just be uh, my website, which is authoraeschwartz.com. All right. Excellent. And, of course, Karen, where's the best place for us to stay up to speed, maybe on your appearances or uh, whenever your newest books come out? Uh, my website's karenslaughter.com. It's Karen with an I, or I'm on Facebook if you want to see pictures of my cats. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Stephen James, and you can see more about my books at stephenjames.net. For more info about our other guests and to check out 
other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. Also, thanks, special thanks to Suspense Radio for being our host over these many years. And friends, always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.